Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 51, The Barbarossa. I do apologize for this slightly shorter episode. I picked up COVID last week and I'm still not fully back on track, though I've now tested negative. It was inevitable, given that over the last three months roughly 3% of the UK population has symptomatic COVID at any given time. Well, but I'm en route to recovery, so nothing to worry about, apart from a shorter episode. So, this week, we'll take a look back at Barbarossa's youth, childhood and his achievements until he had reached his 30s. Some of it had appeared in previous episodes, but mostly just as an aside. Before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too, and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website, historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Lawrence, Joe and Leopold, who have already signed up. And a small correction. Last week I thanked a Sean, who does not exist, instead of a Sheen, who very much exists and who I want to thank. So here we go. Thanks, Sheen. There is practically no information about Barbarossa's life before he was 15 years old. Since Barbarossa was not very fluent in Latin, it's likely that he received an education commensurate with his future role as Duke of Swabia. And that meant mainly military training, military training and then more military training. I still find it surprising that medieval aristocrats would split educational paths for their sons so decisively at an early age, between those who will succeed to the fief and those who will join the church. Frederick probably did not receive more than rudimentary reading and writing skills, whilst, for instance, his uncle Otto of Freising was taught reading, writing, mathematics and Latin from an early age and then sent off to the University of Paris to read with the great Abelard. Uh, it did not make a lot of sense. Child mortality and just general mortality was very high. So more often than not, the one chosen to succeed the father died and had to be replaced by the spare. And that spare would have been destined for the church and hence had the thorough education in the medieval sciences and quite a bit of martial skills as well, just to be on the safe side. And these accidental successes did often do as well as those who had been trained to be counts, dukes or kings. Take Henry II as an example. So giving your firstborn some ability to hold his own with a silver-tongued prelate would have sounded like a great idea to me. But that is not what they did. And Barbarossa did not learn much Latin, if any. What we hear later, though, is that he was very persuasive in his mother tongue, Middle High German. And that mattered more in royal councils, where debates were likely held in German, even though the prelates would produce the minutes in Latin. But, as we will see, Barbarossa's need to rely on translators and interpreters left a lot of room for misunderstandings and manipulations, which will have far-reaching consequences. Barbarossa's mother died before he was ten, during a period when the Hohenstaufen luck was well down. Konrad's bid as anti-king had failed, the city of Speyer had fallen after a siege he probably experienced himself, his family had to leave their home in Alsace and retire to the ancestral castle in Stauf, and finally, his father and uncle had to kowtow before Emperor Lothar III. Then his father remarried and he had a stepbrother, Conrad, who was much younger. We have no idea how these events have shaped young Frederick's mind. 
Nobody at that time would have bothered to write that down. By the age of 15, as was customary, we find him at the court of another, in his case, his uncle Conrad, where he receives more military training. It is here where he forms a friendship with the Danish prince Sven, he will elevate to kingship almost as the first of his actions once crowned. All that training with sword and lance seems to have yielded benefits. He will spend almost his entire life on horseback and go from one battle to the next. Allegedly, found in the front line in every encounter, quickest with the lance and most energetic with the sword. But he also knew when to make himself less conspicuous, such as when the lances were raining down on his men. He equally enjoyed the other aristocratic pursuits, in particular the hunt, and he was an accomplished fighter in the by now very popular and regular tournaments. And he was a pious man, in the way pretty much everyone in the Middle Ages was pious. He went to Mass regularly, prayed and made donations to churches and monasteries. He founded hospitals and sponsored the new and more radical monastic orders, in particular the Premostatensians of his godfather Otto of Kappenberg. But religion was not the driving force of his actions, like it was with, say, Henry II or Otto III. He was, first and foremost, a political realist in a world where religion is paramount. He received his political education during the years of Conrad III's reign. As we mentioned, he fought alongside his maternal uncle, Ralph VI, against his half-uncle, is there such a word, Henry Yazomirgot. But in all this, he maintained contact across the whole network of princes. Only once, and in a very different context, do we hear that Conrad III complains about him directly and asks his brother to tame the young man. In this period, when his father is still alive, Barbarossa seems to enjoy a high degree of freedom, not yet carrying the burden of ducal authority for Swabia. He takes part in tournaments and feuds, joining whichever side he thinks has the stronger claim. He captures the Count of Dachau in a tournament-slash-battle, but releases him without ransom, making him a friend for life. Conrad III may at that point see him as an unreliable cove, but amongst his fellow nobles, he's gaining a reputation as an honest and fearless man who rates justice over preferment. It is around this time that he begins gathering a group of younger nobles around him, who would remain with him for a large part of his reign. Not just the aforementioned Conrad of Dachau, but also Ulrich of Lenzburg, Werner von Baden, Popo von Giech, Rudolf von Pullendorf, Adelgos von Schwalbeck, and then the most famous of them all, Otto von Wittelsbach. Whilst Barbarossa is rising in stature, we can observe a generational shift amongst the leading nobles of the realm. The older generation, who had fought the civil wars of Henry V and Lothar III and Conrad III, are gradually dying out. Remember that both Lothar and Conrad were quite old by medieval standards when they died. For this new generation, the investiture controversy is something from the history books. While the VI was born in 1115, Otto von Wittelsbach 1117, Barbarossa 1120, Bertolt von Sering in 1125 and Henry the Lion 1129. So none of them remember the signing of the conquered out of Worms. What they do hear a lot of are the stories of imperial honour in the days of Otto the Great and Henry III, and they see it much diminished. And most painfully, they see the King of France and the King of England, once mere provincial rulers, rising to great power. Nothing shocks them more than the humiliating treatment of their ruler, Conrad III, by King Louis VII during the Second Crusade. How is it possible? 
that the king of the Romans, the ruler of Urbi et Orbi, of the city and the world, is now so weak, he has to seek the hospitality and support of other, lesser monarchs. There is no way we can equate this to the emergence of actual nationalism in a modern sense. It is more that the governmental system, of which these aristocrats are part, is falling behind. Their fathers might have thought that the empire was superior forever, and that hence taking away from the emperor for themselves would not harm the overall structure. This new generation is more watchful. They are less convinced the empire will be everlasting, and if it falls, according to Augustinus, it would literally be the end of the world. So in contrast to their fathers, they are willing to align themselves with the empire, drop their opposition, provided they have their say in it, and they make a profit from it. And hence they want a strong king, a capable ruler, can unite the kingdom and return it to its ancient glory, not another Conrad III. And this being the Middle Ages, the other key criterion is being in God's grace. You remember Otto the Great, who was believed to be in God's grace after winning two most improbable victories? Barbarossa is the first one since Otto's days, where the people believed in him to be blessed or lucky. And that had to do with the Second Crusade. Once the army overall perished, the Swabian contingent under Barbarossa remained largely intact. They did not drown in the swollen river near Constantinople, nor did they get caught in the afterguard in the fighting near Dorileum. Barbarossa bringing his men back from the Holy Land was a sign that God was with him. When Barbarossa ascended the throne, he was a little bit over 30 years old. The chroniclers describe him as follows. He was slim, not excessively tall, but well honed. Trained in warfare since childhood, he was physically strong, his body muscly and his limbs in perfect symmetry. His hair is golden, curling a little over his forehead. His ears are scarcely covered by the hair above them, as the barber, out of respect for the empire, keeps the hair on his head and cheeks short by constantly cutting it. His eyes are sharp and piercing, his nose well formed, his beard reddish, his lips delicate and not distended by too long a mouth. His whole face is bright and cheerful, his teeth are even and snow-white in colour. The skin of his throat and neck, which is rather plumb but not fat, is milk-white and often suffused with the ruddy glow of youth. Another chronicler, Serbus Morena, a judge from Lodi, adds his ready smile and the exceptional beauty of his hands. That is to be believed, he looked like Ryan Gosling with a perm. But did he? In 1171, Barbarossa's godfather, Otto von Kappenberg, donated an item to the monastery that he and his brother had founded on the site of their family castle. This item he described as a silver hat in the shape of a, or the, emperor. Note, Latin is nowhere near as precise as German. This hat, most scholars agree, had come into Otto von Kappenberg's hands as a present from Barbarossa. If you have ever held a biography of Barbarossa, you've probably seen this hat. It is 31 centimeters tall, weighs 4.6 kilos, is made of gilded bronze, and sports piercing black eyes shining out of white enamel. A number of scholars believe this is a true likeness of Barbarossa, making it the first individual portrait of a living person since at least Carolingian times and it does match the description given, the curly hair, the trimmed beard and the ready smile, but 
Throughout the Middle Ages, descriptions and representations of the ruler were not meant to convey anything about their individual personality. A ruler was first and foremost a personification of the realm. His rule was assured by his symbolic acts, the splendor of his dress, and the possession of the imperial regalia, the scepter, the crown, and in the case of the empress, the holy lance. He appears royal, not just in dress and accoutrement, but also in physical appearance, because he is royal. The royal nature had been bestowed on him by God, and since God never made a mistake, the ruler was, by definition, perfect, inside and out. As God's instrument, he was no longer an individual. Nobody cared what he actually looked like. And if we take the descriptions of Barbarossa, they do follow a certain style, dating back to the descriptions of Frankish and Visigothic kings, and the famous account of Charlemagne by Einhard. And if the verbal descriptions are standardized, then the features of the Kappenberg head may also be what an emperor should look like, rather than what Barbarossa actually looked like. And that is what by now the majority of scholars believe. To me, the question ultimately hinges on why would there be an individual portrait of Barbarossa and none of his predecessors and very few of his successors. I think there are some good reasons for believing it is an individual portrait. It's not so much the fact that the head was a present from godson to godfather. It is more that at the time the head was made, Barbarossa was such a break with what had gone on before, he deserved having his features preserved for posterity. As we heard last week, he had achieved the almost impossible. Within just months, he brought a semblance of peace to a realm that had been caught in a civil war for 80 years. And he did that not by being merciful, i.e. by yielding to the bigger guns, but by bringing actual justice. A piece of political theatre may illustrate that. During the procession out of the cathedral after the coronation in Aachen, a minister Yala of Barbarossa prostrated himself before the king, begging him for forgiveness for a grievous offence. Despite the joyous occasion, Barbarossa refused the man's entreaties, declaring that it was not from hatred, but from regard for justice, that this man remained excluded from his patronage. This is a dramatic shift in the role of the emperor. His predecessors were expected to be magnanimous and allow transgressors back into the fold, even if their crimes were severe. Assuming this was staged, which it almost certainly was, Barbarossa is making a point. And that point is that the old model of the first strike to be forgiven was out, and that from now on harsh imperial justice was the order of the day. And this focus on justice and his willingness to execute the judgments of the princely courts was a big step away from Conrad's helpless call on the parties in the Utrecht feud please come to his court and please, please follow its decisions. Not only was he a strong and severe ruler, he also brought a new optimism to the realm. As we have seen in the last years of Conrad III's reign, the mood in the empire was utterly depressed. And when medieval people are depressed, they blame it on God's displeasure. And what else could have brought on God's displeasure if not the sinful men attacking the Holy Mother Church? A helpless emperor, unable to heed the Pope's call to help against the Roman commune and King Roger of Sicily, was a clear sign the empire, and hence the world, was nearing its end. But within years, or maybe only months, of Barbarossa taking the helm, this depressive mood is gone. It is not just that there is peace, but there is also the hope for a new and lasting unity between emperor and church. As we will talk about in more detail in the next episode, 
Barbarossa agreed a not necessarily new but credible settlement with Pope Eugenius III that will lead to his coronation as emperor in 1155. But most importantly, the church leaders in Germany are behind him and support him even when the Pope and the Emperor have their differences, as they still do. The third astonishing thing about Barbarossa was that he ruled in his first couple of years almost without any personal resources. After his coronation, he had to hand the Duchy of Swabia and a chunk of the family possessions to his cousin, the eight-year-old Frederick of Rotenburg, who should have actually been the king. And he did not even have a particularly wealthy or powerful father-in-law. He was married to Adele of Vorburg, whose father was dead and whose family had lost some of their previous positions. And that made him entirely reliant on the royal lands and rights, such as they were. In other words, he would have not been able to face down a rebellion by, say, Henry the Lion, or even any of the other dukes he had just created. His entire system of government relied on being able to persuade his vassals that his plan had benefits for them all. That is why I believe they may have tried to create a true likeness of Barbarossa in the Kappenberger Kopf, and had not done it for any of his predecessors. By the time the head was made, which was sometime between 1155 and 1171, Barbarossa had established himself as an exceptional leader, a man of most unusual abilities and new hope for the realm. And that means he was more than a personification of an abstract empire, but an individual, and as such he was worth depicting for eternity, in an individual portrait. And if I'm wrong, and this is just a representation of a generic emperor, it is still a great piece, and it does look a bit like Ryan Gosling, with a perm. By the way, I have published a picture of the Kappenberger Kopf on the History of the Germans website. Just check out the blog where you also find the transcript for this episode. Next week, we will take our exceptional king to become emperor after all, being crowned by the one and only English Pope in history, Hadrian IV. I hope you will join us again.